It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Thomas Jefferson never ventured west of Virginia. The Blue Ridge Mountains, whose smoky haze came from the isoprene emitted by the spruces and firs that cover the peaks, were the physical frontier of the founding father's life. But his mind travelled further as the architect of the Empire of Liberty doctrine. Jefferson was so convinced of the intrinsic God-given greatness of America that he felt a responsibility to expand the Union westward. The country nearly doubled in size during his presidency. Of course, in the name of spreading freedom, the Empire of Liberty did quite the opposite for the Native Americans whose lands were annexed or the slaves whose backs America was built on. But Jefferson's belief is an early example of American exceptionalism, the certainty that the United States is simply better than the rest of the world. It's an idea that can be traced from Jefferson's Empire of Liberty through Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address to the Truman Doctrine and even George W. Bush's War on Terror. But new research from The Economist shows that a significant chunk of liberals feel that far from being the best, America is actually the worst. I'm John Prado, and this is Checks and Balance. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, why are so many liberals so pessimistic about America? Polling by YouGov for The Economist has found that Biden voters are more likely to have a negative view of the United States than those who voted for Donald Trump. A year since his inauguration, is this miserabilism largely a result of President Biden's recent woes? Or is there something inherently gloomy in the left's mindset? With me as ever to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief, and John Fasman, the US digital editor. Charlotte, how are you doing? What's going on in New York? All is fine in New York. I've been watching with fascination this spat between Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump. Ron DeSantis is roughly a contemporary of mine, which I hadn't fully appreciated, and we were in college at the same time, at the same college, though I didn't know him. Anyway, I find him totally fascinating as a figure, and our colleague Alexandra Suich is writing more about him in the months to come, so I'm looking forward to reading her stuff. But there's this widening gulf between him and the president, his former booster and ally, which I'm watching with keen attention. That is a very gripping story. John, what are you up to? You've got an unfamiliar background, and it also looks like there's a knife sticking out of your head, which is really alarming me. What's going on? Where are you? That may affect my delivery today. I meant to tell you about that. I had a little altercation last night. No, I'm in a hotel room in Portland, Oregon. Um, I'm out here reporting two stories, one of which I hope will be a podcast next week, 
and uh, reveling in the Pacific Northwest. It's great to be on the road again. It's especially good to be out here in this part of the country. The knives are a kind of decor in your hotel room. Yes, they are. They look like Native American implements of some sort hung on the wall. Well, I'm I'm relieved they're not impaled in your skull. They're not. That's that's good, and it bodes well for this episode of the podcast. Well, this week we're going to be talking about American pessimism and particularly pessimism on the left among American liberals. And this sounds like it might be a gloomy topic, but it's really not. It's a fascinating one, I think. And one I first got interested in when I was talking to Daniela Raz, who is a data journalist at The Economist and who observed that among her contemporaries at college, many of her liberal friends were just incredibly pessimistic about America, about the direction of the country, and had a sort of wildly inaccurate view of how bad America was on various measures. And so the, the working title for this piece was, Is America the Worst? I finished grad school relatively recently, and a sort of common refrain I'd hear is stuff like, it sucks here, I want to leave, um, here being America. And then when the pandemic hit and Americans were very resistant to lockdowns, masks, and ultimately even vaccines, a number of people said to me things like, oh, these protests against vaccines are, they're so American, they could only happen in America, only Americans could be the stupid, we are the worst. And obviously now we know that's not true, that it doesn't just happen in America. But that's kind of where this idea came from, of trying to measure these anecdotes and see if this is really something that people think, and if so, who are the people who think like this? So you thought that we ought to design a poll to test how widespread those attitudes were. So how did you go about deciding how the polls should be conducted and also what kind of questions would get at these sorts of attitudes that we were interested in measuring? So we worked with YouGov and they asked about 1,500 people this series of questions. The questions I had them ask were basically compared to the rest of the world, where does the U.S. rank in terms of minority rights, religious tolerance, LGBT rights, income inequality, and acceptance of migrants and refugees. And respondents could say America's the best, towards the top, the middle, towards the bottom, or the worst. And I think with, like, what I wanted to measure was also things that we have more objective rankings of to see how the U.S. is actually doing. Um, And I wanted to get a variety of measures, things that the U.S. is pretty good on doing well on and things that we're not. So that's kind of why I snuck income inequality in there, um, because we are obviously not doing too well on income inequality. And it turns out that on these questions, there's a big partisan difference. There's a big difference in feelings about where America ranks on gay rights, on the treatment of ethnic minorities in particular. And there's a solid, what would you say, 20% of Democrats who just seem to think that America is absolutely pitiful on various measures like this. Well, of course, that's, that's not actually the case if you look at America compared with the whole world. So can you tell us a little bit about the findings? Yeah, so about a quarter of Biden voters surveyed said that compared to the rest of the world, America was either the worst or towards the bottom on LGBTQ rights and religious tolerance. About 40% said the same about minority rights. Half said the same for acceptance of migrants and refugees. And a little over half said that we are the worst or towards the bottom uh, in terms of income inequality. So with respect to minority rights, gay rights, and religious tolerance, 
a plurality did say that we rank somewhere in the middle, uh, which I would argue is also incorrect. And then for income inequality and acceptance of migrants and refugees, it really was a plurality or even majority who were saying that we're the worst or among the world's worst. And fact check those responses for us. As you say, America is far from being you know, even close to the bottom on a bunch of these measures. So can you just explain what the true picture is for us before we go any further? Yeah, I mean, in, gay rights to me was maybe the most shocking one. The Williams Institute, which is a gay rights think tank at UCLA's law school, ranks us roughly in the top 15th percentile in terms of LGBT acceptance. Other indices rank us similarly. A Gallup poll in terms of acceptance of migrants and refugees ranked America sixth in the world. And then in terms of religious tolerance, I think if anything, Americans find it difficult to tolerate irreligiosity. So that was also interesting to me. With respect to income inequality, we are probably in the bottom half of the world. And so certainly one of the worst among developed rich countries. In that case, it was surprising to me to see that around 40% of Trump voters said that America ranked towards the top or even the best in the world uh, in income inequality. So, Daniela, this is all quite interesting and theoretical, but what does it mean, do you think, or what might it mean when it comes to the business of actually winning elections and winning votes and persuading people that your vision for the country is one that they share? Independents generally tracked much more closely with Republicans than they did with Democrats. And independents would be those votes that are kind of up for grabs. And the fact that independents are tracking more closely with Republicans on these kind of cultural issues, I think, again, speaks to this issue that Democrats have where people think their policies are popular, but maybe the outlook that they have on culture issues is less popular. You know, independents seem to like America much more than this portion of Democrats do. uh, And that could be a problem. Charlotte, let's start with you. New York is a very good place from which to do anthropological work on the Democratic Party and its various tribes. What do you think is going on here? Yes, New York is the cultural capital of neurotic lefties. So (laughs) I won't speak for the entire city. But um, I think that there are a few interesting things going on. The first thing just to note, though, is that this polling does not totally stand alone. There was some polling from Pew last summer that was published in November that asked about whether respondents think America stands above all other countries. And there was a group of a subsegment of conservatives who identified as far to the right and religious who agreed with the statement, had a majority of those people said that America stands above all other countries. And the progressive left, the sort of most left flank of the Democratic Party were those in which a majority said that other countries are better. So that just bolsters some of Daniela's findings. I'll say, though, that the American left is not alone in this. Um, French people's general disdain extends to their own country. There was a poll in 2016 that found that less than 40% of respondents thought that France was better generally than most other countries. But I think that it's not that surprising in some ways that the left is feeling pretty down. The Biden presidency has been a big disappointment. If you look back at at 2020 at the conventions, you only had to hear the speeches that were offered at the Republican convention compared with the Democratic one to show that Republicans insisted that there really wasn't a problem in some big areas. You know, America wasn't a racist country. America wasn't a need, a country in need of dramatic reform, whereas the left really talked about 
this moment, this inflection point. And part of their appeal was to say that this is at last a chance to do something on these really big problems on climate and income inequality and so forth. And it turns out that rather than a turning point in which you go in a new direction, the Biden presidency feels kind of like you're just turning around 360 degrees and then going straight back to Trump. And that's a really depressing outcome for Democrats. John, I think this is a wider phenomenon than one just caused or focused on the Biden presidency. But nevertheless, Charlotte's got a great point there. I think if you are a left-wing Democrat, then you're disappointed with Biden because he hasn't been able to do all the stuff he promised. You know, he promised a certain amount of sweeping change. He hasn't been able to carry that through because the Senate exists. And if, on the other hand, you're a right-wing Democrat or an independent, and actually you didn't think that America wanted sweeping change, you're kind of annoyed with Joe Biden because he's tried all sorts of transformational things anyway, and he hasn't been the president you hoped he might be. So there's a certain amount of this, which is Biden specific, but it's also a, a lot bigger. I mean, I think as Charlotte makes a great point there, there's a chunk of the Democratic left, which is just a bit French. Yes, I think that's right. I think there's a certain noisy section of the left that misread the last two elections to deleterious effect, right? They saw Donald Trump's election in 2016 as somehow defining of America instead of what it was. He was running against a historically unpopular opponent. He lost the popular vote by 3 million. His voters happened to be perfectly distributed. And in 2020, I think they believed the rhetoric of Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and saw this as some sort of inflection point where we have to rescue the country. And if we don't do it, then everything is going to collapse into disaster, where I think most voters voted for Biden to sort of get things back to normal, meaning back to where they were, you know, in 2004 or 2008, when it was just an unremarkable thing for anyone left or right to say you know, every country has done bad things, including the United States, but the United States has done more good than most. That's just an uncontroversial, and I would argue true statement, but one that would sort of get you laughed out of the left today. Yes, I agree with all that. And I think that our colleague James Astle made a great point in his Lexington column about Biden last week, which was really about the expectations that Biden faced and the difficult task that he has. And you heard Biden this week talking about his style of presidency and the idea that he needs to act more like an executive and less like a senator president. Of course, he served as a senator for decades. And I think that there is some truth to that, but also sort of a bitter irony in that one thinks of the president as having the most power in Washington, but in the past six months, it's really felt like two senators, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, have the most power in Washington, and all Joe Biden can do is sit kind of helplessly and pathetically to the side. So I think there's a question within the Democratic left of how do you develop any kind of agency? It, it feels like a party that is both frustrated and impotent, and it's not a good place for Dems. But I think that, you know, going forward, I think there's a real challenge for whoever does run for president in 2024 to think about how do you articulate something that builds on that angst, but also is a more positive vision for the country when really Democrats feel so disillusioned. So that'll be, I think, a real challenge for the Democrats going forward. And I think that disillusionment leads to a certain amount of, of as you put it, frustration and impotence, but sort of impracticality in legislation, right? If you convince yourself that passing the giant voting rights omnibus bill the Democrats have put forth as written is the only way to save democracy and build back better is the only way to make progress in this country, then you're not going to compromise. When I think there are probably 
a lot of avenues to compromise on. I think if you, for instance, turn down the rhetoric a bit on voting rights, had Joe Biden not absurdly compared anyone who didn't approve this bill to Bull Connor or George Wallace, then I suspect you could find 10 or 12 Republicans who are willing to make voting easier at the margins, which is not everything, but which is progress, right? I suspect you could probably find people who are willing to pass bits of the Build Back Better Act. But what the position the Democrats have taken does is it sort of keeps the donors and the base riled up and active by casting Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema as the bad guys. It means you don't have to go back to, say, you know, people who really want free college or paid leave and say, you know what, we just can't do it this time. We're going to do a bunch of other stuff and we'll come back to you later. You can keep everyone engaged and on edge without having to disappoint anyone. Okay, we'll go back to a moment when a liberal philosopher imagined a dark future for America in just a moment. But first, as ever, a reminder that a subscription to The Economist is really the best gift you can give anyone or indeed yourself. Subscribers also get exclusive access to our weekly US politics newsletter, which is also called Checks and Balance, which contains analysis from our best journalists straight to your inbox. Yes, we also have a revamped culture section this week, including a bi-weekly food column. Uh, I wrote the first one this week on fasting. We'll have a variety of authors taking on a variety of culinary topics every two weeks. I'm kind of surprised that no one's reached out to me for that column. What do you want to write? <laughs> um, not on fasting, I hope. It's, very, it's a very economist thing to, to have a debut food column about fasting. How to microwave a meal for five people now I think that my column could just be a, a series of web links to different seamless restaurants <laughs> I'd read that you'll find the best offer at economist.com slash US pod you'll find it in the notes for this episode In 1996, the liberal philosopher Richard Rorty wrote an article for the New York Times in which he imagined looking back at American history from the vantage point of 2096. It was pretty gloomy. Rorty envisaged a dark period in the nation's history when democratic institutions broke down. Inequality of wealth and opportunity became so unbearable by 2014 that a heavily armed citizenry rose up and protested. The only way of quelling the unrest was for the armed forces to step in, which they did. America was ruled by a military junta until 2044, when the generals were toppled by a left-wing coalition. In 2096, when Rorty's supposedly writing, the country is recovering, but its sense of self has changed. American exceptionalism did not survive the dark years, he writes. We no longer think of ourselves as singled out by divine favor. Of course, this didn't happen, or it hasn't yet anyway. Some of the essay does seem prescient though, Sounding like one of the many op-eds and books by liberals in 2016 trying to explain Donald Trump's election, Rorty writes that the tensions between those who made professional salaries and those whose hourly wage kept sinking toward the minimum became unsustainable. He echoed this thought in a 1998 interview. The situation 
of the American workers is going to get worse and worse, I take it, because of globalization. So it seems to me the academic left had better start worrying about you know, what happens to the white working class. But the essay is also interesting because it shows off a kind of liberal pessimism, which was unusual for him. Rorty grew up among left-wing anti-communists. He was always conscious of America's flaws, but knew it was better off than most places. He explained his pride in his country in that same interview. The ordinary old-fashioned kind <laughs> that said America was the first great constitutional democracy, uh, that we set a model for the French Revolution, that for at least a century the rest of the world thought of us as the place where all the promise of the Enlightenment was going to come to fruition. Uh, and even in the 20th century, um, the country that uh, helped conquer Hitler, uh, helped conquer Stalinism, uh, served as you know, a bastion of freedom, the usual mm -hmm. tributes to America. He thought that harping on about America's flaws exclusively was counterproductive, especially for liberals. In an essay published four years before that New York Times piece, he wrote about the America sucks sweepstake on the left, in which liberals compete to find better, bitterer ways of describing the United States. They see our country as embodying everything that's wrong with the rich, post-Enlightenment West. Liberals, Rorty thought, generally want government to do things, fix problems, end poverty, provide health care. It's very hard to make this happen, when they appear to dislike the country and the citizens whose support they need to carry out these schemes. That's something America's most successful liberal politicians have known, or at least known they had to say. Our democracy must be not only the envy of the world, but the engine of our own renewal. There is nothing wrong with America that cannot be cured by what is right with America. There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America. National pride is to countries what self-respect is to individuals, a necessary condition for self-improvement, Rorty reckoned. But he warned that excessive national pride produces imperialism, and too little makes energetic and effective debate about national policy unlikely. This is a dilemma for liberals. To make progress, you first need to identify what's wrong. But too much pessimism makes progress impossible. It's a hard balance to get right. John, listening to Barack Obama there talking about how there's no black America, white America, there's only the United States of America, from the position of life in America in 2022, almost feels a bit transgressive, I, I found. Do, do you agree? I mean, it's interesting how quickly things have moved there. I don't know if it sounded transgressive. It certainly sounded like something you wouldn't hear a politician say now, which is a shame. I mean, I think he's right. There is more there should be more that unifies America than that divides us. I think Bill Clinton 
was right. There's nothing wrong with America that can't be cured by what's right with America. I mean, Frederick Douglass believed that. Martin Luther King believed that. Barbara Jordan believed that. None of them advocated revolution. They just advocated that America live up to its ideals, which is an implicit belief in the worth and validity of those ideals. In my conversations with business people and with workers, I'm struck by the way that they talk about problems and the way that politicians talk about problems, which is not particularly surprising, right? But perhaps worth stating again, which is that for politicians, there's a tendency to spend time and to conduct themselves in a manner that's politically pragmatic, that riles up the base, that helps them win a primary, but that is totally lacking in actual pragmatism. How do you solve the problem? How do you convince someone on the other side of the aisle to work with you? And I think that Biden supporters hoped that he'd be able to do that, and he hasn't been successful to date. And so the question now is, do you abandon that ideal of real pragmatism? Do you retreat to the extremes? Or is there any merit in continuing to try to look for the middle ground? I mean, you think about Trump in 2016 saying, this carnage ends here, or that was his inauguration speech at the beginning of 2017, this carnage ends here. You know, I, I think that maybe Americans might get tired of this extreme language. And perhaps you just want a pragmatist to emerge who's a bit more effective than Joe Biden. I realize I sound like someone who's just wildly optimistic and hopeful that such a person may appear. But I do think that there is an opening for someone to just kind of deal with America's problems without all of this extreme despair. Charlotte, you're completely right about Donald Trump's extreme pessimism when he was running. I mean, part of that is just what you do when you're not the incumbent, right? You say the country's a disaster, it needs me to fix it. And then when you are the incumbent, you say it's great. But even so, Trump took that to an extreme. I remember at one point, he said that the country's a hellhole, and it's going down fast. But I think there's a difference here for Republicans and Democrats, which is that, you know, Democrats want government to do stuff, right? And it's much harder, I think, to bring your fellow citizens along, if you are, you know, convinced that the country is the worst, as Daniela put it. And most of your fellow citizens don't believe that, you know, if, if you're catastrophizing. So it does seem to me that this is a kind of rhetoric that might work better for the right than it works for the left, the kind of the apocalyptic stuff. Not even the worst. I think if you if voters think that you think the country is fundamentally racist, is fundamentally malign, that its flaws define it more than its ideals and more than what it's done well, you know, you're going to have a significant portion of people who don't want to go along with you, who will ask the natural question. If you think this country is so awful, why should I vote for you to lead it? OK, we'll be back in a moment to delve a bit more into why liberals and conservatives think so differently. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Monday.com. 
To find out a bit more about extreme liberal pessimism and where it comes from, I spoke to Peter Ditto, who's a social psychologist and a professor at the University of California, Irvine. He's particularly interested in what he calls hot cognition. These are the kind of snap judgments that people often make in politics or when responding to polls or you know, when something comes up socially that's politically controversial and they don't have the time to go away and think about it and so they offer a a snap judgment, the kind of political conversations that most of us frankly have most of the time. I began by explaining the findings of the poll which Daniela had designed and I asked him for his reaction to it. You know, it doesn't surprise me a bit. The first thing to note is that it looks like a really good example of what political scientists call expressive responding. So, you know, it's an an idea that when we give people a poll, we think that we're asking them to tell us what they really believe, sort of in a factual sense, but they treat it sometimes very differently as a way to express something else, a way to express, you know, a connection with a group or a desire to say, I'm on a particular team, for example, right? And this has usually been pointed out in conservative sort of uh, respondents, right? And now I think this is a really good example of, of seeing exactly the same thing on the left, sort of saying, the way do I, I, I express my sort of connection and my, my outrage about gay rights and civil rights generally is, I say, this is a terrible problem. It's really, really terrible, 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 right? And it's a way of just sort of saying that and whether they really res- sort of defend that in a syllogistic sense, I think is, is probably unlikely, right? So, but it expresses an emotional truth about how serious those sorts of problems are perceived to be. And it, liberal social scientists very often want to see liberals as the rational baseline. Like we're seeing the world the way it is and, and conservatives are somehow biased. But I mean, I've sort of argued that liberals have the same kind of biases. There's just no reason these kind of group biases, this in-group, this tendency to sort of attach yourself to the in-group, valorize the in-group, uh, you know, just going to be more charitable toward them. That's a tendency that liberals show as much as conservatives do. You mentioned earlier that Republicans, and we're generalizing hugely here, right? But on average, Republicans have a tendency to be m- much more optimistic about America and think that America is the greatest on very many measures. Is that, do you think, a reaction to in some sense, it's liberal pessimism. Does that come from somewhere else? Is it reflective of personality traits more? How do you understand that? Conservatives are sort of more invested in authority and tradition and in-group loyalty, right? So there's this investment that people like that are attractive because they want a team that they think is good and they want to be loyal to the, the United States and they and, and the, the tradition that we see. And, and again, liberals are sort of aren't as invested in that. So the, the idea is that the liberals really believe that there's two things that matter, harm, whether people get hurt or not, and particularly protecting people who get hurt, protecting vulnerable people, and fairness, right? And particularly fairness in terms of sort of equality and treating people the same, right? So they don't care. They're not as much, you know, it's like question authority. That bumper sticker, you don't see that on a conservative car. You see that on a liberal car, right? And so there's a tendency for liberals to be more critical, to be less sort of raw, raw, you know, and that's part of what attracts them to that side. I know one of the things you're really interested in your work, your morals and some of your other work is the way we make snap moral decisions, right? The kind of hot cognition stuff. So it's often seemed to me that partisanship plays into that way of thinking about things. People are often in the business of making very snap decisions about what they think about something that's in the news, and maybe they don't have time to examine it properly. And so they go with 
you know, their their hot take, which tends to be their most partisan take and, and the one that kind of fits with their partisan tribe. Do Americans become less partisan when they kind of slow their thinking down and consider things more carefully? Because, I mean, that I'd like that to be true. Or actually, is it just the same when people have time to sit back and, and weigh evidence? You know, I was part of a group of political scientists and, and psychologists and economists who reviewed the whole the literature on political conflict. And then we published a paper in Science about it. And then in that paper, we talked about, we used the term political sectarianism. It's more like a religious battle. It's like two sects of the American civil religion, you know, both convinced that they know the truth that the founders expressed. Democrats and Republicans are more like Sunnis and Shias than they are like political parties. They're, the other side's bad. They're evil. They're trying to do something terrible. And it, it's moralized like that. And I think so that's the problem. That's when people go with their side, when, they're, when they think they're under attack, when they think the other side is, is morally bad. They don't consider their ideas. They don't slow down. I think a good way to think about it is that Democrats and Republicans are locked in sort of a toxic marriage. They've lost sight of, they're, they're supposed to be taking care of the kids and taking care of business, but they're just trying to get back at each other. They're so angry. They both feel so aggrieved at what's going on. The election's being stolen uh, on both sides, right? You see this sort of mirror image, you know, this kind of, right? So that every, they're just so angry at each other, right, that they can't see straight. And you know when you're angry, you know, you say things that you don't believe. You say, if they say, I've never done this, you... You know, if your wife says, I've never done this, you say, I always do that, right? And it pulls, and it used to, I think you see that again, the more one side, if one side tells you there's no prejudice, United, there's no racial problem in the United States, they say, no, that's terrible. It's, it, it just is really, really bad. And I'm going to make that point. And, and that's what I think you're seeing in that expressive responding. And the two sides are feeding on each other. And the more one side says, you know, they'll, the elections are bad. The other side says the elections are safe. The more, and then they just push each other into that kind of these corners of, of argumentation that I think are really problematic to this thoughtful, deliberative democracy that you and I might wish for. John, I'm sure you don't recognize that metaphor that Peter used about marriage. But in general, take on what he said. What have you observed about how Democrats think and how Republicans think and how it differs in all your many years of talking to voters? I think that marriage metaphor was really sharp. And while I do not recognize it as a sort of total representation of my marriage, of course, that is how fights between two parties tend to go, right? You get two sides that are dug in and you've got to do some work to dig them out. I don't know if this is original, but, but it seems to me that right now that liberal and conservative don't accurately describe the American left and right at the moment, because in a sense, liberals are now the conservatives, right? We have a pretty good democracy. Let's try to shore it up. Let's do some practical stuff to you know solve problems. And the right's overwhelming feeling is, well, everything is going to hell and only the orange guy can save it. And they're happy to tinker with the sort of traditionally sacrosanct, nonpartisan administration of elections in order to get the result that they want. So I guess we'll still use liberal conservative shorthand for left and right, but it doesn't quite fit the dynamic that we see now, I don't think. I've pretty much stopped referring to the Republican Party as conservative for some of those reasons. I just don't think it's a very useful label anymore. I think there's a basic premise right now for both parties, which is one of discontent. And the question is, who has 
the ability to ameliorate what is a bad situation. I mean, 91% of Republicans, according to our poll, think the country is headed in the wrong direction. So that's a pretty powerful number. And for Democrats, you know, this is not hardly groundbreaking, but they believe that government does have a role to help in a variety of concrete ways. And for Republicans, one of the fascinating things about Donald Trump was that he was really good at tapping into that discontent without offering any real solution. I mean, as we've said before, um, we used to have these election briefs before a presidential election, which we would compare a given candidate's policies on education with the other candidates' policies on education. We abandoned that in 2016 because it was impossible to do with Trump because he didn't have any policies. So I think there's a real divide that has become so acute in the Trump era between what people think the role of government should be in in addressing that discontent. Just going back to the liberal side of this, one of the things that Daniela told me about her reporting, just to go back to the beginning, was she asked a lot of the very gloomy Democrats or liberals that she spoke to about whether their sense of despair about the country spurred them towards political action and getting involved in politics and trying to fix things, or whether it made them just want to go off and lie in a darkened room. And she said that most of them said, oh, well, for me, of course, it spurs me to volunteer and get involved. But most of my friends are in deep despair about the country and and don't want to get involved at all. And so I think one of the problems with liberal pessimism, as opposed to conservative pessimism, is it tends to rob people of agency instead of getting kind of mad and getting involved, it seems very often they check out and people feel powerless as opposed to feeling like you know, this is their opportunity to participate in the democracy and, and, and try and fix things. I think the point about robbing people of agency is a really good one. That's a risk when you sort of over-focus perhaps on systemic injustices. You give people the sense that they are just sort of the hapless victims of historical forces that they can't do much about. So I think there's good reason for progressives to feel pessimistic at this point in history, because as I said earlier, I think they misread two different elections. I think they thought this was going to be a big inflection point to reshape the country. The support for that just isn't there. There is support for returning a sense of balance and normalcy, and as Charlotte put it, pragmatism to American politics. But that isn't radical change. That's just grabbing the center. And I think the center in American politics is wide open for the Democrats to seize. All right, let's park that discussion there and move to the quiz. So Charlotte, I hope you're filled with the spirit of optimism for this one. The Economist wrote a piece about American exceptionalism in October 1982. We noted that foreigners find America a peculiar place, coming across examples of absurdity, such as bubblegum ice cream. Which senator, fond of a twist on a classic phrase, occasionally says Congress or Americans can walk and chew bubblegum at the same time? I think it might be Biden when he was senator. It sounds Biden-esque. I'll, uh, but who else? Who's a, who's a... Or Schumer. Who's a sunny, optimistic senator? I don't know. I don't know. John Thune. Um, John Thune's a pleasingly obscure choice. In fact, it's Bernie Sanders, the senator for Vermont, in a 2020 primary debate. He used it to say that Congress ought to be able to impeach Donald Trump while still focusing on helping poor Americans. Vermont is also home to the ice cream brand, Ben & Jerry's, which shares Sanders' progressive politics. I'm going to give you the names of limited edition Ben & Jerry's flavors. 
and I want you to tell me which political event or movement they were marking. Okay, there are three of these. The first one is Yes, Pecan in 2009. That Obama's election. Yeah, that sound, that's definitely right. Both correct. The next one is Save Our Swirled, which was in 2015. Some kind of Paris Agreement related Ooh, limited edition. Good one. It's correct. Nice. And the third and final one, I Do, I Do, also in 2015. How do you spell that? I think it's D-O-U-G-H, but it doesn't help. What else happened in 2015? I have no idea. But am I going to put you out of your misery? Yeah, put us out of our misery. Uh, that was the legalization of gay marriage, or at least the Supreme Court's oh, recognition okay. of gay marriage. That's good. Um, I'm glad that we ended this episode with Bernie Sanders because there's probably no one who best exemplifies the Democratic Party's extreme crankiness with uh, some optimism for dramatic government change. Yeah, it feels fitting, doesn't it? And also, Charlotte, I think you came out on top on that quiz narrowly. No. So congratulations no. for that. No? In, in the Economist YouGov poll, when we asked respondents... There was a 93% agreement across parties that I am the worst at quizzes. Um, I just have one minor complaint, and that is that as a lactose intolerant person, I would like fewer questions about ice cream, please. Consider that last series of questions a microaggression. Apparently, Save Our Swirled is dairy-free, so you'll be fine with that. Dairy-free ice cream is so gross. It is gross. Um, We're going to receive a lot of letters from sorbet fans after that. Sorbet is delicious. I now you're just playing to the crowd. <laughs> well, thank you both. Lovely to talk to you as ever. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thanks, John. Thank you to our producer, Harriet Noble, and our sound engineer, Nicola Rolfast. If you like the podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and a review in all the usual places. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe, stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week.